This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell, and we are bringing you another fantastic showcase episode from such a ripper of a podcast that we produce here in ABC Science. Some of all parts, host and producer Joel Werner. What have you got for us this week? I've actually just been hanging out in the studio all week. It's been great. I've made myself at home. This week, it's another story that has a little bit to do with music, but it's really the story of this quite amazing man, Brant Guichard, and a, a really profound experience that has affected his entire life. It's called The Sound of a Seizure. Brant Guichard has heard the music for as long as he can remember. The earliest memory I have was sitting on a bed in my room and enjoying a run of music as it went by me, waving my hands as it just run through. And I didn't recognise it for what it was at the time. I listened to it, it finished, and I asked my friend, who was sitting next to me, watching the television of Healing Board, since we had absolutely nothing to do, and I asked him, did you hear that? And he said, what? I asked him, the music. And he said, what music? made me realise I I was the only one who was hearing that. Nobody else was hearing this. This was all mine. That was Brandt's first encounter with what he calls the music. And in the 30 years since, it's something that he's heard multiple times every day. The music starts by warping the sounds and things I hear then it adds its own rhythm and starts becoming stronger within my head. The pattern is never the same. It is never the same. It is always unique every time. A collection of repetitive noises together, warping together the noises around me into a rhythm, often taking any song I've heard and putting that into the mix, anything I reach for in my memory, that will be placed into the mix as well. All the sounds, even speaking, is part of the music. It's why I become absolutely still sometimes. It's because I don't want to make noise myself. I stop any noise I'm hearing if I can, and I stop moving myself because that has the best chance of slowing it down a little bit. It's partially in my control in that I reach and try to control where it goes. It's like sitting in a car without having any brakes and having the accelerator tied down, but you've got the hands on the steering wheel. 
You can control where it goes, but you can't stop it. Then I start developing a partial seizure, having part of my body losing control. And after this, I will develop into a full seizure, but I will stay fully conscious at this point. Although it will not look like I am, I will be on the ground with a grand mal, as most people think epilepsy is. But after this point, it will continue developing, and past that point, I will lose consciousness. Brandt has epilepsy. And it's a particular type of epilepsy where he hears what are called musical auras. So when Brandt has that music that he hears, that's actually the beginning of a seizure. It's a small seizure, as he told you. But if it doesn't progress to involve more of his brain, he remains aware. And there's nothing to see. Only Brandt can tell us about it. Professor Ingrid Schaeffer is Brandt's neurologist and a world-leading epilepsy researcher. We don't really understand why one seizure progresses and another doesn't, except that we do know that almost everyone with epilepsy is more likely to have seizures if they're tired or stressed. And so you might have some auras, but then they might progress if you're more tired or stressed. Or sometimes people will build up. They'll have a run of auras, which sort of heralds the fact that they're going to go into the bigger seizure. There are a few different types of epilepsy that are related to sound, like musicogenic epilepsy, where music may trigger a seizure, or reflex epilepsy, where, say, a very loud noise may trigger a seizure. As a young lady I look after, who, if there's a loud noise as she's walking along the street, will suddenly have a tonic seizure and fall to the ground. So she actually has to wear headphones all the time to try and dull down the sounds around her so she doesn't get a surprise. But musical auras, like Brandt experiences, are unusual. Like, really unusual. Gosh, I think I have seen one or two, but it's rare. I see lots and lots of people with focal epilepsy, and many have auras, but hearing music is rare. Do you remember when, when you first met Brandt? Can you sort of take us back to that moment? Yes, I can remember when I met Brandt. He was 18 years old at the time, and he came along with his father, and he told me the story of his epilepsy. His epilepsy had begun quite early in life with some convulsive seizures as an infant, and these had occurred every year or so. And then from about the age of eight, he developed awake seizures, and these would be preceded by an aura. Brandt described an aura of music where he experienced what he called twisted sounds. And these were initially pleasant, but by the time he was 11 years old, a couple of years later, the sounds hurt and he was scared. Strangely enough, when I was very young, it felt good to me. It was very enjoyable and it was something I liked a lot. I was one of those people that at puberty, my epilepsy developed quite intensely. I started having proper fits and at this point what I call the, the music that started to become something I had perhaps five to twenty times a day and became extremely intense and started to scare me. I don't understand why but 
the auras, they became very strong and brought on fear to me at that point. Absolute intense fear. That left me a few years later. The fear was not there anymore. And I don't know why that fear occurred at that point. But wait a minute, this is some of all parts, right? So you might be wondering where the numbers are. All right, great. Hold on one moment. <clears throat> hey, Joel. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm doing well, how about you? Yeah, 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 I'm really well. Thanks, um, it, it's, it's been a really Okay, so here we go. The music that you've heard so far in this episode, that music is intrinsically connected to Brant's epilepsy. In fact, it is Brant's epilepsy. Uh, my name is Brian Fu. I'm a data visualization artist at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. By day, Brian works on data visualization for the museum. But by night, he's the data-driven DJ. So the data-driven DJ project, it's kind of an experimentation on different ways of uh, expressing data as music. Part science and part art form, this is data sonification the process of representing numbers in sound. So a lot of that is thinking about what are the strengths of music or what are the strengths of sound as compared to, you know, more visual media like charts or graphs. So it's kind of using the fact that music is more felt and, you know, you can kind of perceive things like change and time more intuitively. The clicking of a Geiger counter where faster clicks indicate higher radiation levels, this is one of the earliest and most practical examples of data sonification. Brian's work, on the other hand, is much more song-like. Initially, I was very interested in learning how to make music. You know, I had a particular skill set, which was computer science, and I wanted to figure out a way in which I can learn music. And so, you know, I did some research into data sonification and, you know, I wasn't very kind of satisfied with the current state of data sonification. I think a lot of times it's almost like listening to a chart, you know? So the question I always had is like, why make it into sound if it's already fine as a chart? So I kind of use that as the, the challenge for this project to make kind of meaningful data music, essentially. So Brian's take on songwriting is a process called algorithmic composition. He comes up with a bunch of rules or algorithms that tell the music what to do in response to a change in the data. And the guiding principle of this approach is something Brian calls uncreative creativity. Yeah, so when I say uncreative creativity, when you think about like the traditional creativity, it's that artist who's just like staring at a canvas and, you know, kind of having like a direct translation of my emotions or thoughts into the medium. But because my medium is code, when I press play, that's essentially the first time I'm hearing the music, I'm hearing the song. Usually the data set is so complex and the algorithm and the rules, there's so many of them, there's so many different variables that it's really hard for my brain to kind of generate that. And that's kind of mostly because I didn't really have a, a music background. It was hard for me to imagine what the music would sound like when I kind of apply this algorithm to the data to generate this song. So yeah, it's almost like I'm just designing the rules in which this song plays out. 
um, which is not a traditional way you would think about creativity, but that is where the creative act is, is designing those rules and it's designing how you map the data to sound. But mapping the data to sound isn't something that happens quickly or easily. It's very much an iterative approach where I have to constantly tweak the algorithm because usually the first time it just sounds like garbage. It sounds awful. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, I think that's a struggle between kind of this creative aspect as well as the data science aspect, because if you want to stay true to the data, you can't really like massage what the song sounds like. If there's a particular part of the song that I don't like, I can't change that one part of the song because, you know, that would probably mean I had to change one part of the data. Usually when I tweak one little thing, it completely changes the whole song. So it's really tricky. So it is just through brute force of throwing things together and constantly just changing, you know, variables until it sounds good. And as long as it retains that kind of faithfulness to the data, you know, you don't want to make the song sound good at the expense of not being faithful to the data. On Science Friction here on RN, this is me, Joel Werner, with a Sum of All Parts special. Today, we're creating a symphony from a seizure. So, we gave composer Brian Fu some of Brant Guichard's EEG data, the brain recordings of Brant having a seizure or an encounter with the music. And Brian took that EEG data and turned it into a song. And again, like, this is not a research project, this is a creative project. So, you know, I wouldn't take what I'm saying as like uh, actual scientific (laughs) uh, research. An EEG or an electroencephalogram is a measure of the brain's electrical activity. It's a really common research technique in neuroscience where it's used to measure anything from a person's sleep behavior to what's going on in their brain during a seizure. They put you in a bed, they put little dots on your head and they say feel comfortable then they walk off on you then they take the drugs off you and for most epileptics the drugs they take will make them quite drowsy so they can't sleep either and I'm sitting in there with the wax electrodes on my head and I'm thinking yep they're waiting for the fits so I'm going to be stuck here and I was Brant's fit eventually came, and it's the data recorded by those electrodes on his scalp that Brian transformed into the music you've been hearing throughout this episode. The way Brian composed this song, or the algorithm that he wrote composed this song, draws on three elements of the EEG data. The amplitude, or the height of the brain waves, which is a measure of how active the brain is. The frequency, or the number of brain waves that occur in a given amount of time, This is a measure of how alert the person is. And the synchrony, or the relative activity of different parts of the brain. And then he just maps changes in these three variables to changes in the sound. Amplitude very conveniently evokes this idea of, is the music louder or softer? So obviously higher amplitude, the louder the instrumentation. Frequency also has a good corollary to music. So high frequency, the instruments are playing at a higher pitch and lower frequency at a lower pitch. Synchrony I use to control the percussion in the music. So high synchrony, the more drums are playing at a synchronous pattern. As well as mapping to loudness, amplitude controls the vocals in the song as well. 
So the higher the amplitude, the more vocals are playing. The different parts of the brain have different kind of vocals associated with it. So if all parts of the brain are firing very loudly, there's going to be many vocals singing very loudly at the same time. Vocals are a key part of this composition. They're the dominant feature of the song. Where are we? What the hell and to generate them, Brian sampled the Imogen Heap song Hide and Seek. Yeah, so I very deliberately used the Imogen Heap song for a few reasons. One, it's completely vocal. Part of the way in which I try to compose these songs is think about what the listener should be experiencing in relation to this data set. You know, this data set represents a human being, another individual, also a very, like, you know, intimate data set, right? Like, it's their actual brain activity. Is it possible to produce, like, empathy between a listener and the subject? So I want to use a vocal element of the song because it is a human subject. Another little trick that I did, or another concept that I tried to leverage was in psychology, or I don't know what field of study this is, but there's something called phantom words, where you kind of stitch a bunch of like, you know, random syllables together. People will hear words, regardless of whether you're kind of giving them those actual words. So I kind of chopped up that song into syllables, and the algorithm kind of stitches it together in, in various different ways, but it plays a little mental trick on people where people will be hearing different words, and different people would probably hear different words. So again, it's trying to create an experience that's very personal and kind of unique to the individual. And it even lets the listener's brain do some work. So again, it's trying to connect the the listener's brain to the subject's brain. By sampling a well-known song, Brian also plays into Brandt's experience of the musical aura, where songs he hears or even thinks about during the seizure are warped twisted and incorporated into the music. In addition to the vocals, Brian sampled strings from the Philharmonia Sound Sample Library and percussion from the American experimental rock band Swans. And then he just let the algorithm do its thing. I'll play the song in full at the end of this episode, but first, what does Brandt think of this song that was composed using his seizure data? That's it. (laughs) So what do you think? First impressions? It reminds me of the graph, actually. I've seen plenty of them. They always show it to me after they make them. Well, at least I can say to other people, I sound interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I try to think about the data set not as this series of zeros and ones. Like, it is a representation of, you know, an actual human being with real experiences and You know, I think the medium of music is very unique in the sense that it will evoke a visceral response. And my goal with this particular project is to think about what should that response be as it relates to this particular data set. So I think that's where a lot of my kind of creative energy goes, is thinking about how to match what I believe this data set is about and how the listener should kind of experience it in this very visceral way. Because... You know, music makes you feel something, and that's what I really like about music as compared to, say, like a chart or like a graph, which I don't remember the last time I was moved by looking at a line chart, but um, (laughs) it's a good match. I think it's the right medium for human data, a medium that has this very primal, visceral quality to it. And now, in full, the data sonification of Brandt's seizure data by the data-driven DJ Brian Fu. (laughs) 
did you notice I had a fit during that interview? I totally had no idea. Um, what, what happened? It was generally a three to four second lapse. And what's it like for you? Like, what's, what's the experience? That one wasn't a heavy aura, it was just a white noise one. Those ones generally don't have enough time to give me a strong ry rhythm. So they're there, I notice they're there, and then they're gone. That is such a mind-blowing story. Was, was Brad Guichard really keen to be involved in this experiment that you set up for him, Joel? Yeah, he was super open to the idea and, you know, really keen to hear what the data from his seizures sounded like when it was turned into music. Absolutely wild. So season two of Some of All Parts is often racing in your podcast feeds, folks. What story is out this week, Joel? This story is about what's happened post-Jurassic Park. Since the late 90s, there's just been so many more new dinosaurs discovered. Dinosaurs that we never even thought would have existed. Dinosaurs with feathers, all these different species. And a lot of it has to do with where we've started looking for fossils, like the province of Liaoning in northeastern China. It's not the sort of place that a lot of tourists get to, but this is nirvana for dinosaur hunters because in the mid-90s, you had some locals there mostly farmers, starting to discover these amazingly preserved fossils of dinosaurs covered in feathers. And it turned out there wasn't just one or two feathered dinosaurs, but there were tons of these things. And there were lots of other fossils too. There were fishes, there were mammals, mammals covered in hair. There were reptiles and amphibians, and there were pterodactyls all found together because you had these ancient ecosystems that were buried by volcanoes. So these things were locked in place, almost Pompeii style. And so that means that people are still finding a lot of these fossils. And these fossils are really important because with each new feathered dinosaur, that's another clue to help us understand how evolution took one of these meat-eating, land-living T-Rex-type dinosaurs and turned it into a bird. Kids are going to love this show. I mean, actually, grown-ups too. Aren't we all kind of obsessed with our childhood fantasies about dinosaurs? Absolutely. This one's for big kids, young kids, anyone who has a thing about dinosaurs is going to be into this story. Or just a thing about great yarns, which is what some of all parts is all about. Stories about numbers with Joel Werner. And where can we find you? You can find me anywhere you get your podcasts or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Thanks, Joel. Can't wait to hear season two. And that's Science Friction for this week. Look forward to joining you next week. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Tweet us at Natasha Mitchell and Joel. At Joel Werner. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.